Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the 30 Years War, Episode 20. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons, all, to the 30 Years War. We are on our 20th episode today. I am your host, Zach Twomley. I am a podcaster, obviously. I am a amateur historian, I suppose you could say. I am an author. I'm also, as of very recently, a registered PhD student. Thank you so much, and really, this has to be said many times over, Thank you so much to all of you who contributed in the last few weeks, and especially those of you who supported on Patreon on the annual membership and took advantage of that special offer where you got two months free. Thanks to your guys' generosity and support, I was able to pay off that chunk of my fees which enabled me to register. So, thank you so much. I'm not getting any of those stressful emails anymore. I don't have to take out any loans. It's fantastic. You guys came through for me once again. Once again, we did it. Once again, we really did shatter all expectations, and I have you guys really to thank for that. I'm feeling very triumphant and very thankful today, and I'm also feeling quite generous. So keep an eye out in the next few weeks. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to be releasing, but I'm going to be doing something. Some kind of thank you episode, some kind of episode that's of interest, and I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it if you've been enjoying what we're doing here so far. So keep an eye out for that. I'm being mysterious because I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing just yet. I have a few ideas, but I'm keeping them close to my chest. Something which was not being kept close to anyone's chest, though, wow, what a segue, was the fact that Frederick faced serious challenges if he wanted his newly claimed crown of Bohemia to be his for longer than a season. In the last episode, episode 19, we looked at why and how Frederick accepted the crown and the people who were set against him and the people who thought that it was a really good idea and that he should definitely go for it. In this episode, we're going to look at the implications of Frederick's decision as the emperor and the emperor's allies reacted to this new crisis which had emerged out of the Bohemian Revolt. How did Ferdinand compose himself and restore the Habsburg position? And how did Frederick explain himself to those Europeans that asked him why? Why would he transform a Bohemian revolt into potentially a religious and political German war for supremacy? Let's find out as I take you to autumn 1619.
For so long, the revolt had seemed like a localised regional affair in Bohemia. But as it progressed, and to stabilise the Habsburg hereditary lands, new opportunities opened up for the enemies of the dynasty, and rivals moved to take advantage of Vienna's new vulnerability. Of course, it wouldn't be enough to denote that Frederick intended to move against Ferdinand and accept that deposed king's crown simply because the time was right and that king had had his day. But it wouldn't be enough at the same time for Frederick to explain that he was only fulfilling his end of a relationship which his ancestors had maintained since the late 1560s when the Habsburgs and Wittelsbach Palatine family first rubbed each other the wrong way. To Frederick, the acceptance of the Bohemian crown was the culmination of several years' worth of neglect and wrongdoing on the Habsburgs' part, but it would be somewhat naive of us to conclude that Frederick did it all for the welfare of the Bohemians. The Habsburgs had not looked so vulnerable in living memory, their lands were in uproar, and their security seemed imperiled, even with Spanish interference. With the Prince of Transylvania approaching, and without the benefit of hindsight, Frederick could be forgiven for thinking that this second siege of Vienna spelled doom for Ferdinand, or at least it spelled opportunity and a chance to negotiate from a far stronger position than his family ever had before. With the Calvinist doctrine also egging him on and portraying the events in divinely ordained terms, Frederick was the instrument of destiny who had the chance to reverse years of Habsburg domination and restore the office of Holy Roman Emperor in time to where it belonged by right of the constitution, not perpetually in the laps of the Habsburgs, but in the hands of the electors, who, with enough work and persuasion, would be compelled to vote for a Protestant emperor. The risks, should go without saying, the risks were legion, but to Frederick, thanks to a variety of factors, these risks seemed worth the immense promise of the reward, which urged him ever onwards. These risks, indeed, began to mature almost as soon as Frederick had determined to accept the crown in late September 1619. In the past, Frederick had loudly condemned Ferdinand's lack of scruples where violating the constitution was concerned. Chief among his condemnations, both to his peers and to any electors that would listen, was the accusation that the Habsburgs clung to the office of emperor unfairly and treated it like a hereditary institution. This was unconstitutional, Frederick exclaimed, because the title of emperor was granted by the electors and not guaranteed by Habsburg might and influence. Brennan Purcell remarked that Frederick did not require dynastic ambition to move him into the anti-Habsburg camp. In other words, Frederick didn't oppose the Habsburg candidate for emperor out of interest for his dynasty's candidature or of that of the Bavarian Wittelsbach family. Instead, it was the Habsburg domination of the empire, seen in their unbroken control over the office of Holy Roman Emperor, which Frederick found so repugnant and dangerous, in Brennan Purcell's words. Thus frustrated in his inability to prevent Ferdinand's successful election as emperor, with even his palatine delegation being forced to elect Ferdinand, Frederick must have felt vindicated in his claims that the Habsburg monopoly over the empire was unconstitutional in addition to being unsafe. Here again, the Habsburgs had manipulated their rivals to ensure that no serious alternative candidate would be put forward, while concerns about maintaining the peace and not wanting to upset the apple cart compelled the electors to give their acquiescence. In Frederick's mind, 
It was the threat of what the Habsburgs would do, launch a war in defence of their family's interests, which moved his electoral peers to remain compliant, and to Frederick, this was not right or lawful. Yet in addition to these convictions, we must also note Frederick's unfortunate character flaws. Rather than indecisive, as some have criticised him as being, his most glaring faults in autumn 1619 were on full show. A breathtaking, almost incredible, naivety. As Brennan Purcell wrote, At this time, Frederick also manifested a character trait that would contribute much to the development of the Thirty Years' War, his tendency to believe what he wished and expect what he hoped for. In other words, an inability to distinguish the probable from the possible. This tendency was to lead to tragically frequent political miscalculations. In the context of our narrative, this cutting analysis meant that Frederick expected some kind of riposte to Ferdinand's contesting of the imperial election, and when he was elected unanimously, Frederick then expected that his meagre resources would stand against him. Finally, when Ferdinand managed to maintain himself in Vienna, even as the enemy approached, Frederick then expected his allies in the Netherlands, the Evangelical Union, Transylvania, Savoy, and especially England, to act in concert with him to oppose Ferdinand properly. Yet this assembling of allies would not materialise. The story of Frederick contains a message of caution, the danger of relying on your allies so extensively when they stood to lose so much and gain so little by supporting you. Frederick never seemed to fully comprehend what he was asking of those allies. He never seemed to read between the lines of King James's correspondence and see that his father-in-law, troubled and torn as he was, could not and would not intervene in the empire by making war on the emperor if he wanted his peace policy to succeed. Similarly, the Dutch couldn't afford to move determinedly against the Holy Roman Emperor when war with Spain loomed in the very near future, even while they decried Spain's increasingly troubling accumulation of strategically important lands along the Rhine. The Evangelical Union, too, would never countenance entering into open opposition against their emperor, so long as the threat to their own freedoms from the Habsburgs remained minimal, and they had their guarantees. Other allies told similar stories, with the exception of Bethlehem Gabor, whose Transylvanian forces were already in the field, no one seemed willing to lift a finger to aid Frederick, because in this context, lifting a finger did not mean political or ideological defence of their interests, it meant sponsoring a rebellion and waging a war against the Emperor. Try as he might, Frederick would never be able to motivate his peers to go so far. The roots of Frederick's downfall were found not just in his underestimation of the situation's many dangers, or in his overestimation of his allies' capabilities, it was also in Emperor Ferdinand's demonstrated ability to transform the situation through a reliance on allies who were willing to bear the risks involved in coming to his aid. This willingness to bear risks, it has to be said, can be explained more by Ferdinand's determination to auction off his possessions in addition to auctioning off things he did not own, rather than Ferdinand's ability to somehow inspire reluctant friends into action by his charisma alone. The irony is that, by rushing to meet the threat which Frederick posed to his noble house, Ferdinand violated the constitution and displayed the very contempt for the Holy Roman Empire's laws, which the Elector Palatine had warned 
was always part of Ferdinand's nature. Perhaps, then, it could also be said that the Constitution and the Empire itself meant less to Ferdinand than the successful pursuit of the war and the defeat of the challenges to his dynasty which would grant the Habsburgs a new position of power and authority. Just as he overestimated his allies then, Frederick may also have underestimated just how low Ferdinand would stoop in order to stop him, and this miscalculation was to cost him everything. This trend first presented itself during a meeting between Ferdinand and Maximilian of Bavaria on the 8th of October 1619. It was here that Ferdinand reinforced a relationship with the Bavarian Duke, his university companion at Ingolstadt and his brother-in-law, which set the tone for the rest of this three-decade conflict. By this point, matters appeared grave indeed for Ferdinand. On his way back from being elected Holy Roman Emperor at Frankfurt, Ferdinand was informed of the dire situation unfolding in Hungary, where Bethlen Gabor had rolled over all remnants of Habsburg resistance and been hailed as a liberator by virtually all of Habsburg Hungary's settlements. 17,000 men were camped in southwest Bohemia and another 8,600 along the Moravian frontier. So, Ferdinand was not totally without soldiers, but he could only muster fewer than 5,000 men to defend Vienna itself, and more than half of these were Hungarian loyalists of questionable loyalty. Panicked redistributions of soldiers followed, and a Habsburg advance towards Prague abandoned when it was learned that against these meagre forces, Bethel and Gabor marched with an army of more than 35,000 men. Mindful of the great test which was to come, Ferdinand nonetheless saved some time for an aforementioned meeting with Maximilian of Bavaria, where the emperor, perhaps at his most desperate point, sought to restore some balance to the equation by drawing upon the natural allies of the Catholic League. The League had been resurrected since its disbandment a few years before, in recognition of the severity of the Catholic emperor's position, and in jubilation at the first great Catholic victory at Zablati on the 10th of June, 1619. The progress and danger of the Bohemian Revolt also sharpened the nerves of those Catholic princes who were too small by themselves to stand against any potential contamination of the revolt to their lands. Maximilian of Bavaria was the natural choice for these princes to lead their league, since he had been its original leader and was the wealthiest potentate in the empire at this stage. This latter fact was one which Ferdinand was made keenly aware of, because if he wanted Maximilian's help, the price would almost certainly be high. The richer the prince, the higher one could expect his price to be. Yet the problem for Ferdinand was that the kitty was virtually empty, not to mention dangerously in the red. Indeed, Ferdinand's financial woes make for almost as much depressing reading as his military woes. Debts relating to military expenses alone had ballooned to 4.3 million florins. The Habsburgs in Austria could expect an annual income of 2.4 million florins, but they had spent 5 million florins to date on waging the war against the Bohemians since autumn 1618, and from their papal allies and their Spanish allies, in addition to other forced loans, they received 3 million florins. As bad as this mess appeared, and it was a gigantic economic and financial mess, the reality under the surface was far worse because Ferdinand had personal debts of his own. He was personally in debt 
to the tune of 20 million florins at the time of his imperial coronation. These debts would not soon be settled because the projected incomes from the Austrian Habsburg's lands were significantly reduced by the revolt when the lands and estates expected to pay their taxes were seized by rebels who had absolutely no intention of paying the Habsburgs their taxes. As a result, incomes plummeted, expenses skyrocketed. Facing chronic financial problems like these, it was inconceivable that Ferdinand could possibly pay off his allies or overcome his enemies. In short, had he had no allies, in other words, Ferdinand would have been doomed. So to achieve his victory, to achieve his ends, he would have to venture outside of the realm of acceptable, traditional, constitutional policy. If the solutions Ferdinand procured seemed distasteful, then they also demonstrated how far he was willing to go to preserve what he upheld to be his birthright and the rights of his ancestors. This was Maximilian of Bavaria's great opportunity to profit from the wretchedness and desperation of his emperor's position like no other duke in the empire had ever done. Evidently, Ferdinand had been mulling over the Bavarian option for some time since he made a stop in Munich on the 8th of October even while he'd been informed of the crisis in Vienna. Vienna would have to wait, for Ferdinand was about to construct the foundations of a deal to effectively save his dynasty. Maximilian's strength was not only found in his deep reserves of cash which had been accumulating for several years, it was also found in his leadership of the Catholic League, active for all intents and purposes since August 1619, after spending some months on ice. If Maximilian could be persuaded to lead this coalition of Catholic German princes into battle against the Bohemians in the name of the Emperor, then Ferdinand's situation would dramatically improve. Funded by the League's members, Maximilian could expect to field an army of over 20,000, which would solve so many of the Emperor's grave problems. The critical question remained, though, of how the penniless Ferdinand would pay Maximilian when he was so deeply in debt and personally dependent on foreign subsidies himself. It was in this question that the crux of Frederick's downfall can be found, several months before the Elector Palatine was even declared an outlaw, or had the imperial ban pronounced on him. To pay off Maximilian, and to enlist this auxiliary as a loyal Habsburg servant, Ferdinand effectively bribed him, not with money, but with land and titles. Upper Austria and the Upper Palatinate were promised to Maximilian, and the Duke would be entitled to wrest taxes and leverage contributions from his stranglehold over these lands until Ferdinand's debt to him was paid. This was controversial enough, but at the Munich meeting, Ferdinand also promised to transfer Frederick's electoral title to his Wittelsbach cousin, thus demoting Frederick, the Elector Palatine, to a mere prince in his lands, or those lands he was allowed to keep. The implications for such a treaty were astounding. Ferdinand was essentially reorganising the makeup of the Electoral College behind the back of the majority of its members without their consent and definitely without proper process. It is possible to explain Ferdinand's actions by the desperation of his position, not to mention by Maximilian's ambitions, as the Duke fully appreciated the extent to which he had the Emperor over a barrel. The Bohemian Revolt would never be defeated if Ferdinand could not harness the power of his allies, and where these allies were not willing to march for free, they had to be compelled. In return for these controversial promises, Maximilian 
has been requested for the common good of all of us to take over full command of the Catholic defences, to which the high Catholic estates of the Empire, His Imperial Majesty, His Dynasty and the endangered lands have been constrained for their own preservation to agree. The terms of the Treaty of Munich, as it was called, between the Emperor and the Bavarian Duke can be read fairly easily as they're translated in English and available in the source book of 30 Years War Primary Source Documents, which has been provided by Peter H. Wilson, and which is very, very appreciated indeed. The Treaty of Munich detailed exactly how extensive Maximilian's control over the Habsburg war effort would be. It read, His Grace, the Duke of Bavaria, is granted free and absolute direction over the Catholic constitutional and defence system, including recruitment and movement of the troops, who he will lead in the name of the Almighty for the common good. Maximilian of Bavaria, regardless of the difficulty of the business, danger and problems, is prepared to commit his own person, his worthy house, land and subjects, and is also prepared to give further proof of his affection and support to his Imperial Majesty, his Royal Highness in Spain, and the entire praiseworthy House of Austria, to defend the Catholic religion and its adherents against the Imperial Estates, and to accept the associated heavy burdens, dangers, and other consequences, and to put the common good above all private interest, and to accept the free and absolute directorship of the Catholic defence system that is entrusted to him, along with the recruitment and leadership of the soldiers in the name of the Almighty, but on the following express condition, that it is to begin once his grace has actually completed the collection of the necessary money, soldiers, and other requirements. For as long as the Duke of Bavaria needed it, the Treaty of Munich declared that Maximilian should have the full support with money and troops of all the Catholic estates, as well as that of his Imperial Highness, and that this aid in money, in troops, will be forthcoming as long as his grace deems necessary. Maximilian was to direct these forces against the enemies of the Habsburgs for as long as it took to eradicate them. However, since by acting the Duke of Bavaria invited reprisals from the enemies of the Habsburgs, who now became his enemies, the treaty provided for Maximilian's compensation. Therefore, the treaty reads, and particularly because his grace is likely to contribute well in excess of what is needed for the defence system, Ferdinand and his Spanish allies were obliged to refund all the expenses incurred through the military constitution and soldiery, excluding the cost of his own territorial defence militia, provided as assistance to his majesty, or retained in his lands, according to the circumstances, to aid his majesty. To this end, as much of the Austrian lands are to be pawned to his grace, until the debts are settled. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Further startling stipulations followed. If Maximilian lost Bavarian land and was unable to get it back, he would be compensated by Austrian lands, which would be ceded to his person. In addition, if Maximilian managed to seize any lands from the enemy party, these lands could be occupied by him and pillaged for contributions and taxes for the sake of his war effort, and he would not have to return them until these expenses had been paid. Upon making this deal and establishing this contract with the Duke of Bavaria, Ferdinand proceeded to Vienna, which was under a shadow of gloom and doom as the Transylvanian Bohemian army approached, while Maximilian moved to meet with the Catholic League and inform them of their newly assigned task. In time, Maximilian would raise an army of 25,000 men under the auspices of the Catholic League, with its sole purpose being the destruction of Ferdinand's enemies and the aggrandizement of Maximilian's property portfolio. That was perhaps its secret secondary aim. Illegal and cynical though this Treaty of Munich was, it proved a masterstroke for Ferdinand, who at least had an ace up his sleeve which could be used against the rebellious Bohemians. Before he could reap the fruits of these deals though, Emperor Ferdinand would have to survive yet another siege. Before we talk about that siege though guys, I want to talk to you about something which I think is very exciting. It's all very well to hear me talk about these battles, to hear me talk about the different characters of the Thirty Years War. But if you want to see all of these events visualised, if you want to actually watch videos, essentially documentaries of what's happening here, and if you want to get some spoilers too, then make sure you check out the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. Kings and Generals has more than 1 million subscribers, so they must be doing something right. They absolutely are doing something right, it should come as no surprise. And they're friends of the show as well, which is really cool. Kings and Generals have covered so many different topics in history, it's almost hard to keep up with them. One of my favourite series that they've covered is on the Diadochi, or the successors to Alexander the Great's empire, who together made up those different empires in ancient history that we all know and love. The Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire, etc, etc. The story about how those individuals fought against each other and how really it was like an ancient version of Game of Thrones is really fascinating, and Kings and Generals does a great job bringing the stories to life, showing you how the battles took place in real time on a map, 
and giving you a good account of what historians say about either side of the debate. It should come as no surprise that after watching all of that stuff, I was seriously in the mood for some total war, but that should give you an idea of how good they are at their jobs. More to the point, for us though, they do some great work on the Thirty Years' War too, and if you would like to find out how the Battle of White Mountain went in November of 1620, then feel free to watch their video on that battle. They have other content on the Thirty Years' War as well, such as the Battle of Breitenfeld and the Battle of Nordlingen. The major events, of course, are there to see, but they're going to be working well into the future on all sorts of different topics too. So if you're on YouTube anyway, and you're thinking to yourself you might like to look at some historical content and learn a little bit along the way, make sure you check out Kings and Generals. It's pretty hard to miss them, just search for them, even in Google, search Kings and Generals YouTube. Or if you're on YouTube, you know how it works, just search for them and they'll come up. If you were unaware, YouTube has so much potential for history nerds like us, so give Kings and Generals some love and make sure and let them know who sent you there. Alright guys, now back to the show. On the 21st of November, the Bohemian Rebels finally crossed the Danube upstream from Vienna and approached it from the east alongside Bethlen Gabor's forces. As the coalition force moved, news was received that 3,000 soldiers commanded by the Lower Austrian Estates had cut off Ferdinand's line of retreat from Vienna. The Emperor, who had endured a perilous journey to return to his capital from Munich the month before, was now truly trapped. But the situation was not as grave as it appeared on paper. The approaching horde of enemies possessed no artillery and would thus have to starve out the city. However, the inhabitants had stockpiled enough food to last several months, and the surrounding countryside around Vienna had been ignited to prevent any opportunities for foraging. The practical difficulties were exacerbated by the heavy rains, not exactly a surprise in late November, but they certainly dampened the morale of the now 42,000 soldiers that engaged in a loose siege of Vienna. Turkish auxiliaries had been promised by the Grand Vizier, but they had not arrived, which added to the mutual distrust between the Hungarians and the Bohemians. Then, as normally happened during a siege, disease began to rip through the army, reducing effective numbers by a considerable amount. Barely a week after they had crossed the Danube, on the 27th of November, Bethlen Gabor received word that his lands had been invaded by a Polish army, and less than a week later, in early December, the Hungarian forces had moved off, followed by the Bohemians. Ferdinand had survived yet again, and yet again he had leaned heavily on his allies. In this case, the friendly but officially neutral King of Poland, who also happened to be his brother-in-law. Sigismund III of the House of Vasa is a figure we've met before, and someone who we'll meet again many times. He was more interested in reclaiming his Swedish birthright than in fully committing his kingdom, to the Thirty Years' War. In the event, it's hard to say whether he would have been allowed to intervene by the Commonwealth's nobility, even if he had wanted to. Notwithstanding these issues, or Sigismund's potential bitterness at Ferdinand's inaction during the King of Poland's own troubles, recently enough, as Livonia had been invaded, the King of Poland did recognise that aiding the Emperor was an important investment. Rather than invade Bohemia, 
Sigismund authorised his commanders to use the Cossacks, those wilder auxiliary cavalry forces within the Polish army, and make for an invasion of Transylvania. 4,000 Cossacks would march into Bethlehem Gabor's lands, accompanied by 3,000 more Cossacks under Gabor's Hungarian rival. Fortunately for the Prince of Transylvania, much had been done in the previous months to consolidate his position in Hungary, and the challengers found few supporters, being forced to retreat by early December 1619, just as Bethlehem marched towards him, unaware that the danger had by then mostly passed. Unable to discern for the moment how serious the situation was, Bethlehem approved the Hungarian Diet's suggestion to search for a truce with Ferdinand. There was no need to fight a war on several fronts if it wasn't absolutely necessary. By mid-January 1620 then, as a result of all of this diplomatic scheming and interference from the Poles, Ferdinand's Hungarian problem was, for the moment, solved. Ferdinand got his house in order in good time, and by the end of 1619 he was in a much better strategic position than he had been at the beginning of the year. Just as other figures were on the move though, so too was the source of the emperor's angst, the Elector Palatine. Frederick had begun his journey to his new kingdom in early October of 1619, making first for the Upper Palatinate, which bordered the lands of his enemies, well, they were certainly his enemies now, as well as his friends. It was while he rested in Amberg, the capital of the Upper Palatinate, that Frederick was confronted by Ferdinand's emissary, who urged him to take part in an imperial diet and rescind his acceptance of the Bohemian crown. By this point, Ferdinand had already met with Maximilian of Bavaria and made the necessary deals in the Treaty of Munich to essentially doom Frederick. In any case, Frederick rejected this idea, but he determined to send an open letter to the relevant courts of Europe which would explain his actions, much like the Bohemians themselves had done in their Apologia, but this mission of Frederick's wouldn't be completed until early November of 1619. Frederick was crowned King of Bohemia in a sumptuous ceremony in Prague on the 4th of November 1619. His reign was destined to last one year and four days, but there was no guarantee that such an ignoble fate awaited him or that the demeaning moniker, the Winter King, would soon be his. Wine flowed in the streets, and coins were thrown liberally to the crowds, just as the occasion demanded. If his regime's authority was wafer-thin, then it projected a strong, durable veneer, which had many in Prague fooled. Three days after Frederick's coronation, his wife Elizabeth was then crowned Queen of Bohemia, this time wine and bread rather than coins, were issued to the excitable public. Within less than two months, Frederick had gone from scheming elector to the emperor's worst enemy and most dangerous threat. He had become a king, and his wife had become a queen. Had the circumstances not been so weighted, it would have been quite an achievement to stand as Bohemia's king at just 23 years of age. As Frederick well understood, though, the coronation was only half the battle. The war for Bohemia, and perhaps for his own existence, was just beginning. Underneath the pomp, the political considerations of Frederick's decision were already making themselves felt. Although Ferdinand by this point hadn't yet rid himself of the threat outside Vienna, by the first week of November 1619, Frederick was feeling the pinch as well. 
he had been given good reason to become somewhat concerned. He may have been the best connected Protestant prince, but these connections, much to the dismay of Frederick and Christian of Anhalt, his right-hand man, had not borne fruit. The Dutch, whom Frederick was connected to via his mother, could not countenance total support and investment in the Elector Palatine's cause, because they not only expected to resume the war with Spain soon, they also had their own domestic problems to deal with, as we'll see in future episodes. Dutch strategists were also concerned at Frederick's abandonment of the Rhine Palatinate, which left open a critically important flank to the south that Spanish troops on their way to attack the Netherlands could certainly pour through. The Evangelical Union, another potential supporter, had made its divisions clear, if not its position, in the previous months. Opposing the Emperor with war was a step too far for many, though they did declare themselves ready to defend against the Catholic League if circumstances required. That left the French, who were torn between Catholic and anti-Hausberg commitments, and the English, where King James had done much to both clarify his distaste for his son-in-law's actions and to urge caution. As early as January 1619, many months before Frederick had accepted the Bohemian crown, James had offered to mediate the Bohemian dispute, and he became enraged when he learned that Frederick had, without waiting for his reply to a request for advice, just gone and accepted the Bohemian crown. The scale of England's diplomatic complexity and the extent to which it intertwined with the actions of Spain will also, like the Dutch, be considered in future episodes. So don't worry about these outside players, we'll talk about them soon enough. With his allies doubtful and his enemies still besieged, Frederick worked to explain his position to those that would listen. An open letter was the solution, and had the potential to inspire potential allies to join his cause, if it was received with an open mind, of course. Frederick, at this point, was probably starting to realise what he was asking of those who agreed to join his cause, and from his limited experience in the last few months, he had already seen firsthand just how hesitant and fearful others were to enter into direct open opposition to the Habsburg family. Frederick was asking these apprehensive powers to risk the ruin of their lands for the sake of a cause which must have seemed far removed from their daily lives. It was therefore necessary that Frederick cast the revolt in just terms, and presented his acceptance of the Bohemian crown as a means of protecting righteous Bohemians against the unjustified and unconstitutional wrath of the Habsburgs. Frederick explained how hotheads were to blame, for they preferred to push things to extremes and risk all, rather than abandon their deep-rooted intention of returning everything under the spiritual domination of the Pope and the secular domination of a foreign power. This was a barely-veiled reference to the insidious and disruptive power of the Jesuits, a common theme of Frederick's open letter here. And Frederick continued to note that We can easily see the burden, worry, effort, work and danger during the current persistent warfare and ruined lands that must arise for us alongside many other considerations. We also do not doubt that sensible people will agree that to accept the offer of a kingdom in such a state demands a far stronger resolution than to refuse a peaceable kingdom, and for this reason many have been praised in the history books. We testify again with a clear conscience that if we had seen the means or certainty that, by repudiating this crown, we might have ended this unholy war, obtained the noble peace, and thus adequately secured the entire Roman Empire, 
then all the goods and honour in the world would not have swayed us. But we would have not only immediately refused the offer of the Bohemian crown, we would have done our utmost to this end. Any criticisms thus levelled at Frederick's decision-making had been answered. Frederick claimed he had no choice but to accept, since war would have followed even if the Bohemian crown had been refused by him. If an opportunity for peace had arisen, the Elector Palatine would have been the first individual to harness it. Frederick also elaborated on this idea by reasoning that if the Bohemian crown had been refused, then, presumably, we would have been blamed, especially by the adherents of the evangelical religion, for all the subsequent bloodshed and destruction of lands. If Frederick had not answered the Bohemians' call, then regardless of what they said, the Bohemians would be crushed, and Protestants across the empire would be next. Again, Frederick looked to the Jesuits as the culprits, without explicitly mentioning them. For the aforementioned restless people, Frederick's talking about the Jesuits there, have constantly admonished and instigated them, and here he's talking about the Catholics, to act like this, even using published writings, and have also stated that the little innocents should not be spared. No, not even their own children, noble families or land and people. These and similar threats have been heard constantly. In addition to the militant Catholic Hasburg Jesuit threat, there was another danger which would arise if Bohemia was seized by a foreign power and became detached from the Holy Roman Empire of the great German nation. This was a reference to the potential of the Turks to become actively involved in the revolt and seize Bohemia for themselves. Frederick wrapped up this letter with an appeal to the unity and commonality of Christendom against malignant forces, declaring the intention to cultivate and maintain the goodwill, friendship, correspondence and trust of all Christian potentates, electors and estates and principalities, followed by a request for friendliness, graciousness and good intentions that they would spring to our aid with both word and deed against all those who, with vile intentions, would set upon us or our kingdom and lands with hostile force. Frederick neither knew nor imagined what was in store for his Palatinate or for Bohemia. At this early stage, with the Bohemian crown freshly resting on his head, a sense of optimism may well have crowned his actions and correspondence, in spite of events taking place in Hungary, outside Vienna, or within the courts of Europe. Although he could not have known it yet, with some exceptions, Frederick was on his own, and soon he would be faced with insurmountable odds, terrible losses, and bitter betrayals. Indeed, this winter king could not have known that his icy reign was to last barely a year. For Frederick V, the Elector Palatine though, this was to be the longest, coldest and darkest season of winter he had ever experienced in his young life. Next time, we'll pick up the story just as Frederick's position begins to unravel. With the immediate dangers to his position neutralised and important allies brought on side, Still, Ferdinand was not finished stacking the deck against the Elector Palatine, just as Frederick was not finished hemorrhaging allies, as the full weight of the Habsburg repost was set against him. I hope you'll join me for that, my very appreciated history friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 20 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing all of you soon. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.